I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. Joining me today from New York City is Maestro Roger Nirenberg, conductor extraordinaire and creator of the music paradigm. Roger has conducted and recorded with countless orchestras around the world. He enjoyed long tenures as music director of the Jacksonville Symphony in Florida and the Stamford Symphony in Connecticut. In 1995, Roger began the Music Paradigm, an interactive learning experience for organizations of all types that uses unscripted orchestral performances and role-playing to teach organizational and leadership skills. Since then, Roger has taken the music paradigm experience to over 20 countries and hundreds of corporations and organizations, including Lockheed Martin, Harvard Business School, Pfizer, Unilever, Sony, and Google. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Maestro Nuremberg. Delighted to be here, Mindy. Roger, there's always a story behind the start of something unconventional. Can you start by telling us the story of how a successful and well-established conductor came to create the music paradigm learning experience? Well, um, I was really concerned about the audience and the evolution of, of classical music in America. Um, I saw that a lot of people who, uh, on whose support we were dependent and whose support we wanted, they didn't have a very direct experience of the music itself. And I was always trying to think, how could I make the, the, the music come more alive for them? So and when you they say they could, didn't have a direct experience, do you mean they just weren't going to performances or they would go and didn't seem to really relate? They would go, but they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't experience the music. They had a block against the music. And I think many people do. Uh, and how did you know so, that they weren't experiencing it? Well, I could tell by the, by the conversations that we would have afterwards that uh, they, they really... Uh, it was more a kind of a social thing for them. They liked being part of the audience. They liked being part of the experience. But the music wasn't actually reaching them. And I guess because I know what that experience is like. When, when you feel as though you're on the outside of a piece of music and it hasn't reached you. And then, and then you invest something or some kind of transformation happens. And then suddenly, yes, now, now you know what the piece is. Now, now you're mm. inside the piece. So I wanted to bring people inside of the music mm. so that they could feel it. Hmm. That's what I really cared about. And I wanted, I wanted to expand the audience. I didn't want the audience to, to grow smaller. Uh, and so I was doing all kinds of activities. I was doing, you know, family concerts and children's concerts and, and, and all kinds of events in order for that purpose. But I, I, I was kind of getting disillusioned about that. And I was looking for something else. And in fact, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I just sensed that there was something else out there. Hmm. And little by little, through a series of unrelated experiences and a lot of happenstance and chance, I happened upon uh, the discovery of music as metaphor that when music can stand as a metaphor for something else in life, that it doesn't cheapen the music, it actually makes it sound more beautiful. Hmm. And I began to experiment with that. 
and stitch together all different aspects from my entire career, from the teaching of conducting at Juilliard to junior high school concerts that we did on tour in Florida and an event that I did in Connecticut where I placed the preschool children inside an orchestra sitting on the floor on pillows, and I kind of stitched it all together. And then when I experimented with it, when I launched it, just to see what would happen, it was way more successful than I than I realized. And when you launched and, this, was it with your end audience who you work with now, or did you launch it with families and children? No, I launched it. There was there was a very enlightened and, and adventurous member of the board who said, why don't you bring this to my business meeting? So that was the first time that I did it. And uh, he, you know, it wasn't just me, but we brought the orchestra also. They were seated, his, his people were seated inside the orchestra among the, amongst the musicians. And then I did, uh, I did a series of exercises. You see, I, I thought that when people are outside the music and they, they can't get in, it's because there's a kind of intimidation factor. And I wanted to eliminate that. So I wanted to put them in a, in a position where they felt strong and they felt like they were intelligent. Oh, they felt, interesting. They felt sort of like they weren't they weren't knowledgeable. They weren't educated. Okay, so, so you're wanted, bringing the music wanted, to them and their environment. I wanted not only their environment, but it wanted to be about something that they they felt that they strong, they felt secure and uh, and safe. Okay. So I thought to myself, well, what do people really care about in our country? You know? And so I thought, well, everybody cares about their career. That's what they really care about. Hmm. So that's what I made the subject. All the music was related to talking about skills that would be, that would be useful in their career. Okay. Well, let's just put a pause on that a minute because you've already covered some significant factors of the success of this experience. And I want to just kind of walk listeners through how this experience works and plays out literally. (laughs) And as we do that, I want to take a closer look at some of the factors. You mentioned that the orchestra and the participants are all seated together. So there's That's not right. an orchestra see, up on stage. I, I wanted the people to be able to feel what I felt when I was in love with music, when I fell in love with music. I fell in love with music sitting inside the orchestra and playing. Mm. That's where it happened to me. So I wanted them to have that experience. Okay. That's how they got seated inside the orchestra. Okay. Another thing that I want to point out is when you conduct these experiences, you do meet with the client ahead of time and get a feel for what they want to accomplish, what their goals are, what the challenges are. Talk to us a little bit about some of the examples of what you might hear in that pre-meeting. Well, let me say, first of all, that uh, initially, my interest was in bringing music to people. That's what I cared about. Mm. I didn't care about businesses at all, really. I mean, (laughs) I was grateful for the people who sponsored us, but I wasn't really, I wasn't trying to do anything about that. Mm. But the first organizations for which I did this were business organizations. And not only did they talk about how transformative was it was in terms of the experience of the music, but they said that it was revelatory in terms of business insights and skills. 
And that was a surprise to me because I wasn't, I wasn't aiming for that. Mm. But I discovered that it accomplished more for them than many of the kinds of trainings that they were doing themselves mm. and that they were hiring consultants to do. And consultants told me that they were jealous about it because it was so effective and so fast. <laughs> so eventually, I saw that there was opportunity by serving businesses in this way because it was a time when businesses were transforming. The business environment was, was changing a lot, and they needed to get across changes that in that they had to institute in order to keep themselves competitive. Huh, it was the time that, you know, by IBM was, you know, supreme, but it was about to be taken down by the personal co computers. Mm. And it was the beginning of when huge organizations were getting outcompeted by, by startups like, like Apple and, and Microsoft and the big organizations, they needed to be able to change. And it turned out that this, the music paradigm, was extremely effective in in sh showing them and inspiring them to participate in this kind of change. When you conduct these experiences, you always use a live orchestra, and it's always a local or orchestra, whether that's somewhere here in the U.S. or in the Netherlands or Ecuador. How often is this an established group who plays together regularly, and how often is this group made up of various session musicians who may have never even met one another before? I'd say in majority, they're orchestras that have that play together either regularly in the freelance way, or let's say they're the the local uh, opera orchestra or ballet orchestra. But sometimes it's it's the major symphony, and the differences are not great between between mm. those types types of orchestras. Interesting. They're only superficial. Okay. Well, this is a very unscripted, spontaneous event. You do have one hour that you rehearse with this orchestra before the event, and is that strictly reviewing the the music the score the piece that you're going to be utilizing it's the same way i would rehearse if we were going to do a concert or a recording okay so it's strictly the musical portion of it yeah, and then we need to rehearse because the setup is so different from what they're used to because there are all these empty spaces where the people are sitting amongst them. So they're much more spread out than they normally mm -hmm. are. So we need to rehearse in order to learn how to play. And sometimes the, the rooms that we play in are, are more challenging because they don't have a very good, uh, very welcoming acoustic. Mm, sure, I imagine. Well, we, we already mentioned that once the participants arrive, they're seated amongst the orchestra members. You then conduct the musicians in a series of spontaneous role-playing exercises that use music as a metaphor, as you said, to reveal collaboration or dysfunction or behavior results or attitude results. Give us, give us an example of what this looks like, an example that you've, you've done to give us an idea well, of this. You see, the learning begins the instant that they walk into the room, because these are, you know, by and large, these are really successful executives. You know, they're very smart people and they have big egos mm -hmm. and they don't suffer fools easily. Mm -hmm. And uh, normally they feel like I know what's going on. They have high rank in their organizations mm -hmm. and they don't take well to being taught mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. So they walk into the room and now everything is different. They don't know where to sit. 
They don't know what's be, going to be asked of them. They don't, they don't know what it's about. Mm-hmm. And, and they, you know, they may like ask the musicians, do you know what this is about? Well, the musicians don't know what it's about either. <laughs> they only know what the music is. They don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> they only know what music we're going to play. Uh-huh. So there's the, this works in a kind of a magical way because, you know, these people, these, uh, these clients of mine, they tend to be pretty resistant to being told anything. Mm. Well, but and I think that's that, part of the magic of this experience is they're not overtly being taught. It's not a, another death by PowerPoint presentation, but it's really them observing and coming with away with their own takeaways and observations. Exactly. And that gives them ownership and, and a real awareness. And it's information and knowledge that they can immediately apply because they've just seen it lived out. Talk to us some more about an example of, of what that looks like. Well, so I consult with my clients in advance, you know, the people who are in charge of the meeting. And I say, so what's the goal for the meeting? Why, why is it important? Why are you spending all this money and this investment and especially taking people off their jobs? Mm-hmm. That's the most expensive thing for them. Mm-hmm. And normally flying them to, you know, some particular place. You know, it's a big investment of this. What's, what's the issue? What's so important? And they'll tell me what they're trying to accomplish. And I probe. I ask probing questions about, you know, what would success look like? And then I ask, well, what's holding you back? Why, why do you have to say these things? Why isn't it happening already? Uh, so I get a picture about what success would look like. And then I, I take it back to my own uh, my own studio, and I think about it. I think, how do I make these particular kinds of issues come alive spontaneously in the orchestra? Mm. So the orchestra is exhibiting that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. I never say, you know, this is about you to the audience. I never say that. Mm-hmm. I just do a demonstration. So you you ask, what? well, what would a demonstration be like? Mm-hmm. So there was one organization that was embarking on a very big transformation, a five-year transformation. This was a huge, major corporation with, you know, 50,000 employees. Mm-hmm. And they had one kind of business model, and they were going to change it to another. And they understood that this was going to take a lot. And they thought, we'll never make this change successfully unless our leaders you know, the 5,000 people who run this organization are behind this and understand it and promote it. Mm. And so the leaders who were just used to supervising and, you know, fixing things, fixing problems when they came up, they had to understand that that it was going to take more than that to do this. They Mm. had to advocate and they had to manifest a new reality. So the way... Really be 100% in. Right. So the the, uh, the exercise that I invented for this was, I said to the orchestra, we're going to play this passage now. And I explained that each section in the orchestra had a principal player, one person who was the leader of that section, the principal viola, the principal trumpet, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I said, in this, in this reading that we're going to do now, all the principal players are completely committed to this. But the rank and file of the sections are going to do as little as possible without getting caught. (laughs) 
And they all laugh at that because it's such a preposterous idea. And I say, you know, that means that, you know, you look good if somebody's looking at you, but between you and your instrument, it's coast until retirement mentality. (laughs) So everybody laughs, and then the orchestra plays. And the orchestra sounds fine. It sounds perfectly Mm -hmm. fine. Hmm. There are no wrong notes. Nothing is out of tune. Nothing's out of place and everything. Mm -hmm. And so we play for half a minute or so. And then I say to them, I see, I, I see all these surprised expressions on your faces. I'll bet you thought that was going to be really bad. But, you know, judging on the way you react, you're thinking, well, that's fine. And I said, but why should that surprise you? Because we all know that's the way most organizations work. <laughs> and the people who, who take responsibility and accountability are so good that they carry it for everyone else. Mm. And if you are the type of leader who just simply, if something goes wrong, uh, you'll fix it, you'll never recognize this as a dysfunction. But mm. we can tell what it is, is what a dysfunction it is by hearing the following. I say to the orchestra, what would it be like if everybody used everything you know to make this orchestra sound the way these people never imagined a, a music could be? Mm. What would that be like? Well, that wakes up the musicians, you know. <laughs> and and so then we play it again, and every musician is committed. And the notes are the same, mm-hmm. but the energy is completely different. It's as if suddenly it it levitates, it elevates mm-hmm. into into a kind of this spectacular musical experience. And the audience is awed by mm. that mm. because they're not, they're not used to feeling that kind of energy in music. They haven't had that experience before. But now by, because there's a contrast, they hear it. And then I say, if you're the type of leader who fixes things when they go wrong, you'll never draw that kind of energy. The only leader who draws that kind of energy is one who focuses on what the possibility could be and leads people towards a possibility that doesn't exist now. Wow. So so that's a very powerful incentive for a leader to think, well, all these people, they don't have to be told to think this. They're all thinking, well, what would would it be like if I was that Uh huh. What would I be doing? Yeah, well, and what a powerful way to experience that just in the space of 10 minutes compared to in the real world, usually it it takes a lot of time to experience different, you know, it's harder to connect the dots. And it takes place over a much longer time period if you have leaders who are just sort of leading and really carrying the other 80% or if they're leading and really empowering and motivating and energizing every single person on their team, you know, you're not going to see that change and be able to connect the dots in 10 minutes like you can when you're sitting right there in the midst of an orchestra. Yeah, I'm glad that you use that language, because that's exactly what music enables you to do. Because it converts behavior into result very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so because everything is sped up, it's much easier to connect the dots because all the dots are closer together. Yeah. And you see the connection between behavior and result. And that's part of why it's so powerful. In addition to which, nobody can argue with it because it just happened. 
it <laughs> right happens in front of your right eyes there and ears. in the room. <laughs> and you don't have to advocate. You don't have to. You don't have to try to convince people. They were there. Uh-huh. They saw it. Sure, sure. Well, and people at that level can really appreciate the amount of talent and skill that they're watching happen with these orchestra players. I mean, they. I remember watching the Nutcracker Ballet. It was a very professional troupe that was putting it on, and our seats were not real close up. And then I watched the same show again, but had uh, almost a front row seat. And when you're that close to the performer, it really changes the experience because you can see yeah. every muscle in their legs and you realize what athletes they are. And it, I'm sure there's a real powerful comparative experience with these executives or surgeons or whoever it is who's sitting right next to these orchestra musicians and they're seeing what goes into this. Right. At the beginning, when they walk into the room they feel like i have nothing to do with these people Mm -hmm. you know what am i here for Mm -hmm. this has nothing to do with me Mm -hmm. the further and further we go into the session the more the orchestra begins to look just like their organization Mm -hmm. because i'm customizing my role-playing exercises to to touch on all the hot spots that are alive in that organization Well, and it's fascinating that you're able to make the orchestra a microcosm of so many different organizations. I mean, you've worked with government organizations, uh, pharmacy, manufacturing, consulting, legal. I mean, you name it, you've worked with it. And that's really amazing that you're able to translate all of that, all of those varied and diverse industries into this orchestral experience. Because all those organizations, as diverse as they are, and you gave a good list there, uh, they have a lot in common. It's about when the work is so complex that individuals can't do it, that it has to be done by many people. And then it's, it, it requires such organization that the people who are managing it are not actually doing the work, that they're supervising it. They're organizing it, but they're not doing it. And their job is to draw the best result from the teams that are doing the work Mm. uh, to inspire them. Because the default is that my boss tells me what to do and I do it. Mm -hmm. And that attitude, whereas it's functional, it leaves out a lot of great potential of the imagination of the the, t- the people in the teams, mm-hmm. the uh, the creativity, the innovation, the closeness to the work and the knowledge, the detailed knowledge about how things go, and and the solving of problems right there. One of my clients was a uh, was a nuclear power plant, and uh, they had an issue that it was top down. It was run very top down, mm-hmm. and so the people who were in the plant. And working with the machinery, when a machine broke down and they would solve it, the people who were at working at the machines would defer to the higher-ups. But the higher-ups didn't know as much about the machinery as the person who was next to it. Mm-hmm. But they didn't feel authorized. They didn't feel empowered to use everything they knew. Mm-hmm. So that's a very common thing in organizations. And that's something ca- that can very, very easily illustrated in orchestras. Because orchestras, to a certain extent, they have the same problems. The musicians just defer to the conductor and they say, you know, 
whatever he or she tells me to do, I'll do it. But Well, that reminds me of a quote that I read of yours where you said, every word that I speak, every inflection in my tone of voice, every gesture is directed toward the goal of creating a feeling of community. A community simply acts faster, more intelligently, more creatively, and with more joy than a group that is primarily focused on its leader. That's right. And a lot of leaders don't understand that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a hard concept to grasp. Whereas you as the leader, you're important, but you're not the one. You can't make the work great. Mm. You can inspire others to make the work great, but ultimately they have to be the ones that do it. Hmm. And so it's, it's a kind of a different and a counterintuitive approach to leadership. Sure. Well, I imagine that's got to be a lot of fun for the musicians too, because they're seeing their skill set and their talents and what they do being applied to real world contexts and so many varieties of contexts too. And just seeing the the relevance of what they do to other parts of the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very well said. And you, you've understood something really important. The other thing is that musicians, you know, they're rather abstracted away from the way the effect that they have on other people. And they don't get to see that. But in this case, they're right near the people who are reacting to them. Mm. And because the metaphor makes the music come so alive for the audience, they can feel how much the the audience admires them. And when they get applause, the applause is different than what they've had before. These, these people who are applauding them are really grateful and very admiring. So it's, it's very inspiring for the musicians, and, mm. and that feels great. Oh, I imagine. I just think it's so powerful that you have the orchestra and the participants sitting together. I think there's so many powerful factors to that, yes. from from the close-up observation of what goes into making this music to just, wow, I relate to this person, and we're more alike than different. Right. And even though we're in completely different vocational worlds – we have a lot in common. <laughs> right. It's very disarming. Because oh, I there, there are many people who, who walk into the room, great skeptics, and they feel like they've seen everything, they know everything, you know, that, that I'm not going to, nobody's going to show me something that I don't know about. And then what happens is, is so real and so spontaneous that they get disarmed. And I love that kind of audience that's skeptical and uh-huh. angry and negative when they come in. <laughs> and they, you know, where they have their idea about what's going to happen, because you can see it takes like about 10 minutes or so for their for them to start to drop their guard. Mm-hmm. And I think the moment that it really happens most is when I have the orchestra play without any conductor. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's kind of like looking around and they're wondering, how, how did they do that? How hmm. is this happening? Uh-huh. That's when they begin to realize this, this thing is real. And uh-huh. they're also watching the musicians react. And so I'll sometimes give the musicians a, a role play, and then the musicians are not quite sure what they're going to do. And, but they, they figure it out, and they organize themselves very quickly in a couple of seconds. So what would and be an example they, of that? Well, I'll ask that we've just – uh, they'll play a particular passage, and then I'll say – what would it be like if this were by a different composer? And I'll mention a composer. Mm. 
And sometimes, you know, it's a composer completely different time. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say somebody from the French Baroque, like Jean-Baptiste Lully. Well, a lot of musicians aren't sure exactly what Lully's music sounds like. And so they're looking around for who, who, who has an idea about it. Mm. And of course, they can't discuss it and they only have a couple of seconds to organize. Mm. But what happens in the orchestra is this ultra fast negotiation. And within a couple of seconds, they have solidified on this is our approach. Huh. And of course, that's wonderful uh, picture of what organizations are wanting their people to do, mm. to quickly collaborate and share information uh-huh. and, uh, and find the person with whom a relationship is, is strongest and most productive. Uh. But it happens in a matter of seconds with the orchestra. And that's just with them for, listening to each other play, I imagine, right? Because they can't right. discuss it. it. No, I don't let them discuss uh-huh. it. I, I, I'd, say, I'd say, what would it be like if this were by Lully? Uh-huh. And I give them a second or two. So, so the ones I, who have a distinct idea of what that would sound like are probably really playing out in that style. And those yeah, who are they, maybe they play with more a little unsure, bit more confidence. Exactly. Sure. They pick up on there and they're like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's the way to go. <laughs> we'll do that. Right. It's what would happen in a great organization with great teamwork over the course of, let's say, a week. You know, uh-huh. how they, they would share information and, and, and arrive at a consensus about what we're going to do. But in the orchestra, it takes four or five seconds for it to happen. Sure. Now, there's one thing that's important to mention, which is, you know, we're talking about, you know, what I've been doing for the past 20 years. But since the pandemic came, you know, there aren't live meetings. Yeah. Organizations are not holding meetings. And, and in fact, there are no concerts and no rehearsals mm-hmm. because you can't congregate. You can't bring people together. So I had to scratch my head a lot to figure out how do I convert this. But I did finally create a virtual format, mm. uh, which includes various video vignettes from sessions that I've done, plus a live musician who comes online and with whom I interact. And it's a kind of a, a mixture of many things, but it actually works quite well. Mm. So is that available now? Yes, it is. And uh, it can be done with an audience that is all spread out over the world. Mm. And it can be anytime, anywhere. You know, So it's very flexible. Oh, wonderful. Well, kudos to you for coming up with that. Way to go. <laughs> well, I will include plenty of links, as usual, in the show notes of ways that listeners can connect with you, your website, other ways to learn more about your work and music. And is that the best place for listeners to reach you if they have an interest in learning more about this virtual sure, experience? Yeah. Is your website? website, there's a contact tab, and you click on that, and that'll connect direct into the organization. Okay. Fantastic. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to listen to next that you have to share with us. Well, this was, I had just modeled a number of dysfunctional leadership behaviors. I mean, the leader who tries to do everything, the leader who tries to, to lead by dominating, uh, the leader who feels that you just leave the people alone and let them do the work. And in each case, I ask the musicians to react and they complain about, the, about that type of leadership. <laughs> so I've just modeled a bunch of, uh, a bunch of dysfunctional leaders. 
And then I thought, well, I better balance this. So I handed the microphone to one musician, and uh, I asked her to comment about what it's like working with a great conductor. And it was, uh, it was very dramatic because she made remarks, and the room erupted. It erupted, first of all, in applause and laughter, <laughs> and then she got quite serious, and then there was another kind of applause. Mm. It's even more dramatic in video because you can see the people. It's like that. That room turned into a party because she said, you know, you, you answer the musician's prayers by letting us tell, tell the conductor exactly <laughs> right. what we think of them. Right. And all those executives, they are whooping it up and partying. And <laughs> what you can see is everybody hates their boss. Everybody <laughs> hates it. It's this strong bond that they have be- between them. And, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a couple of really bad conductors now, right? Really bad ones. But talk just a little bit about working with a great conductor. Well, first of all, you have to know that you've answered uh, many of the musicians' prayers today by letting us tell a conductor exactly what we think of him. Go on now. Okay. So, so for that, we thank you. Okay. Um, working with a great conductor takes being a musician from being a job to being a fulfillment of our highest values. It allows us to realize our art form in a way that's bigger and better and more profound than we can realize it on our own. Thank you. I have included the video of this segment in the show notes, so you can fully appreciate the moment by seeing the visuals as well. Thank you so much to Maestro Nuremberg for sharing his time and expertise with us today and for the ways he enhances so many of our lives with music directly and indirectly through his work with some of the world's biggest corporations and organizations. Today is December 29. Christmas 2020 is now behind us, and the beginning of a new year is just a few days away. Even though the pandemic restrictions will not dramatically change for most of us when the calendar flips to 2021, most of us are ready to be done with the old year and welcome in the new year. If you want to take advantage of this new beginning and the start of 2021 to make some positive changes or set new goals or start fresh in some other way, music can increase your success and make the overall process more enjoyable. In episode 66, Olympic trainer Daniel Stewart explains how music can increase motivation and performance. Tying in with this topic is episode 51 on conscious music and how the music we choose to listen to shapes our mental narrative. If your goals are more related to athletics or fitness, you'll enjoy episode 23 on how music is a legal substance that can enhance athletic performance by up to 15%. With the holidays this past week, I had a little more time and I watched the documentary Phil Collins' Face Value. It's free for Amazon Prime members. I'll include a link in the show notes. I really enjoyed it. It brought back flashbacks for me of the late 90s, which is when I did a lot of listening to Phil Collins' Hits album. And it took me down a whole rabbit 
portrayal of Peter Cetera and Genesis and Chicago and a bunch of other artists I was listening to at that time. A fun trip down memory lane. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your New Year's celebrations be enhanced with music.